Hey everyone. Before we get into today's episode, we want to just take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. To be clear, we here at Debate This believe that everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting podvoices.help. Again, that's podvoices.help. And if you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. We've put a bunch of links in the show notes, so please go ahead and check that out. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Matt, did you want to talk about Black Widow's feet? Well, I'm going to talk about eco-terrorism. Got too excited about jorts. I'm leaving now with my Roomba or your blood on my hands. I'm back. Back on my bullshit. What is meme if not airhorn persevering? No, this is this is not a family show. And I quote, many American titties. Why'd you have to bring Dane Cook to this, Andrew? No one wanted that. Oh, you guys are not ready for what I've got today. And I've apparently hit the very end of my attention span. Give me like 30 seconds. I'm looking for rhymes. Hello, and welcome to Debate This, the show where no one is right, but someone is definitely wrong. In this show, we take time out of our busy adult lives to talk about comic books, video games, and how Midnight Sun getting a major console game, but being a card battler, feels like Matt made a wish on a monkey's paw. I'm so angry. (laughs) It's my favorite thing that's ever happened. You know, that might be my favorite opening that we've ever (laughs) recorded just because of the truth behind it god i am spitting mad about that game so if you haven't been if you listening out there have not been following the news on um the new midnight suns game midnight suns is the like avengers for ghost rider and matt has been talking about on our other show avenge this midnight suns for the entirety of avenge this and uh it was finally announced that Midnight Suns is getting a cool game that's probably going to be on Switch, um, but it's a very crunchy strategic <laughs> RPG, which I could not possibly be less interested yep. in playing. Like they yep. released a gameplay trailer this week to to you know just complete the arc. If you haven't listened to this podcast before, they released a gameplay trailer this week, and they had announced this game about a year ago. And that it was being made by the developers who did XCOM and XCOM 2. And everybody in our Discord was like, hey, Matt, you're not going to like this game. You <laughs> wouldn't like XCOM. And I was like, all right, fair, but I still want to play this game. And so this game page, gameplay trailer came out, and I was like, well, I'll just watch the trailer, and I'll see how bad I'm going to have to white-knuckle my way <laughs> through this game just so I can mm-hmm. beat up Get baddies with Ghost Rider and Nico yeah. Minoru. Yeah, and Hang out, beat up friends. Lillian. Yeah, and boy, I watched that gameplay trailer and I couldn't do it. I couldn't even make it the whole way through the trailer. I well, can't. And the, <laughs> and the kicker here is too, it's not just a card battler. There's an RPG relationship building element with the yeah, heroes of the game. It is it is a who's who of Matt's least favorite cliches all bundled together. Least favorite also, side note, that game looks... That game looks great. I'm very yeah, excited. I'm really I'm excited. very excited <laughs> for this game. Uh, 
Matt watching the trailer is like that TikTok or that gif of that woman drinking LaCroix where she's like, <laughs> is it good? No. Well, <laughs> and then at the end goes no all right no mm-hmm. yeah that well, was i was, exactly I was gonna was. say it's the it's too many slices <laughs> <laughs> the uh the moment that got me in the trailer if you were curious was when they said each battle begins with a random selection of cards from your deck and i was like no nope, oh. i'm out, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> if you want to make kyle immediately yeah. hard <laughs> yep yeah <laughs> those are the words to do it if it, i if this game came out tomorrow, we would not be, or this game came was out, we would not be playing this or yeah. recording this right if now. If Midnight Suns be, has one fan, Kyle is one of Kyle them. Kyle is <laughs> it. <laughs> if Midnight Suns has zero fans, it's because I am dead. So some amount of time ago, uh, Todd and I teamed up to discuss social justice in comic books. Um, and since no one, no one ran us out of town, so patron and friend of the pod, Sharkbait, commissioned us to follow that episode up with one exploring the history of gender in comics, which he is able to do as a $25 member of hashtag Nation. If you'd like to commission your own flavor text, you can do so by joining us at patreon.com slash debate this and holding that master debater membership for three months. Uh, hey, that's side, really good. Yeah, side, <laughs> side note real quick. Do you all remember those like, late 90s commercials on tv when they would run the the disclaimer that quick oh, or yeah. faster at the end oh yeah mm-hmm. they Rather don't do that than, anymore do they they just no they, they just do have a they do still ad. do that it but they well they usually the that. font's like three point font at the bottom and it's like also this medicine might kill you but first and you're like oh I don't know. the ad is literally like try extra gel and then doesn't tell you what it does, but spends the next 60 seconds listing out all the side effects you might suffer from. It's real bad. Uh, I mean, it sounds like extra gel could have some good side effects, so I don't know. It, it might. Um, so this is a hefty topic, and not without its potential missteps for this straight uh, white man to make. So to help help me avoid falling down these pitfalls, or to fall down them with me, are Todd <laughs> Fridging Thomas... Andrew, accidentally misgendering your character in an attempt to be progressive Henderson, and Matt, screw it, they're a lesbian now, Cole. Do you guys think that if I chanted cishet squad enough, it'd become a thing? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. I do think it would I'm become go a no. thing. I don't no, think you want it to like become that. the thing it would become. What if I did it ironically? Is that nope. any better? See, nope, but it the problem is the... The okay. people chanting unironically are only going to see you chanting ironically. That's true. Yep. That's a good point. I need to stop doing things ironically, you guys. Right. Yeah. It's it, that the defines the, the 2010s and sent us down some bad roads. Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, so <laughs> today on this podcast, um, we are going to attempt to pull back a bit of the curtain on the demographics of the readers and representation of different genders and gender expression in comics through the industry's long history. Um, We want to acknowledge that this is an industry that has been dominated by heteronormative cis white men for most of its history. And while it has grown more inclusive over the last decade or so is still far from perfect and has a long way to go. Uh, We are also going to mostly be covering the quote, big two Marvel and DC uh, because of the weight they carry in the industry and the collective zeitgeist. And if we don't limit it to just the big two, this would be 
a series and a whole podcast, not just a, <laughs> a hopefully less than two hour episode of one podcast. Um, also, because of the the culture we're in, um, a bulk of this is going to mostly just be about the history of women and their representation in comics, but we will get to non-binary um, and trans expression in comics towards the end as well. Um, not because they're any less important, but just because of the amount there is to talk about. So uh, to kick us off, Todd has um, brought some stats and information on the demographic of readers of the big two comics throughout its history. Um, what do you got, Todd? Hey, did you all come here today to listen to statistics? Because I've got statistics <laughs> in a podcast form. Uh, so, okay, so just some some fun things here, because we're going to talk about, um, you know, representation. We need to talk about who is reading, or at least who was reading comics and who's apparently, per survey data, reading them today. And so what was fun was when I was kind of doing some of this research, I found what I believe was a student's, uh, like, senior capstone reader, like, paper from 2009. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, titled, yeah, man, this is awesome. Uh, the Golden Age of Comic Books. Representations of American culture from the Great Depression to the Cold War. So um, Mark Kelly of Marquette University in 2009, if you're listening to this podcast, I am going to cite your paper in our podcast <laughs> and our show notes. So we'll start in that like late 30s, um, early 50s era. So I know Kyle will probably talk about it later, the golden age of comic books. We talk about yeah. the golden age a lot. Um, just to kind of give you the the brief TLDR to get this started. The golden age was that time of late 30s, early 50s. We're talking towards the end of the Great Depression. We're talking World War II. It's um, it's it's comics moving away from individual comic strips into comic books. That's kind of the start. Mm -hmm. And then up till pretty much the inaction of the Comics Code Authority is the, the golden age of mm -hmm. comics. The good yeah, times, this is as it the, were. The good times. <laughs> yeah. This is this is when they were good. They were goodish. Then they got bad. Then they got good again. The the uh, roaring twenties, if it as if you, as you it were. will. If you well, will. So this is where we saw we saw the birth of just your your big heroes. So Captain America, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, um, and then we saw a lot of other heroes that also kind of ended up being big or not so big, depending on how you look at them. So we saw Shazam, who at the time was named Captain Marvel. Uh, Dr. Fate, Green Arrow, Aquaman, Namor the Submariner, Human Torch, but like the android Human Torch of Marvel, <laughs> not the Chris Evans, Michael B. Jordan Human Torch that, that we got with the Fantastic not, Four. Not Johnny Storm. Not Johnny Storm, if you're going to call him by his he name. He said Michael B. Jordan. Everybody knows Michael B. Jordan was Johnny Storm. <laughs> Uh, this is also the time when we first started seeing the emergence of heroes punching Hitler, um, which is <laughs> my, my favorite. Oh, man, I've that, shared the list so be, many times. That would be a really good like like documentary title. Yeah. Like, heroes, heroes punching, punching Hitler. Hitler, a look at the comics golden age. Yeah, that so rips. They, we do not have a, an Imgur link for this, but... Uh, for those of you who are subscribed uh, to the Patreon to have access to our show notes, I've cited a number of my sources in here, including the link to the listicle of heroes punching Hitler. Um, honorable mention of those heroes, just for fun context here, uh, the DC hero Adam, who is fighting Jetpack Hitler, which is Hitler with a jetpack. 
Worse than worse than regular Hitler. <laughs> well, that's but not as bad as Mecha Hitler. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. speaking of Raphael from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fighting robot Hitler, um, <laughs> that happened in the nineties. But okay. Good. But probably what's most important here to address is that the image of Steve Rogers, Captain America, punching Hitler actually debuted a year before the U.S. even entered war. Um, like we had not yet officially entered World War Two. And uh, Jack Kirby and the rest of them like put this out and they were like, yeah, we'll do this. Yeah, this feels good. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, Marvel at the time was run by predominantly Jewish men, I believe. Yep. Yeah. And everything that I read was sharing how or at least a number of things that I read was sharing how like they were getting hate for this. Like they were like. Marvel comics were catching heat for taking these strong stances, um, which like uh, America was really anti-Semitic until they uh-huh. learned about the Holocaust. Um, and then they were like, "Ooh, maybe that's bad. And, um, and and then for a short time thereafter, they weren't anti-Semitic anymore. And then in recent years, uh, they became uh, more. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys notice how uh, just fancy Bucky looks in this cover? So let's talk about Bucky real quick. So so the reason why I share all this is context, right? Like this is this is setting the stage for who is reading comics. Um, the other thing that kind of emerged after all of these heroes started getting off the ground were sidekicks. And if you notice, a lot of the sidekicks, your Bucky's, your Robins, they're they're kids. And I, that was to appeal to the mm-hmm. youths to get them engaged in, in reading comic books. So the kids that were reading it. Yeah, it was their self-insert yeah. character. So when we look in the mid 40s, um, the, the the data that I could find was that there was a study done in the mid 1940s that stated 70 million Americans, which was like half the population at the time, hmm. were reading comic books, um, oh. which like what is one thing half the nation does now except hate the other half it's not, of the nation? It's not like, read. <laughs> yeah, yeah certainly not read. It doesn't it, involve much. no. And breaking that down further, it was a pretty high percentage of both reported boys and girls. So 95% of boys, 6 to 11, and 91% of you know self-reported girls, 6 to 11. And then 41% of men ages 18 to 30, and 28% of women. So like a hefty that, amount of society. That ties in, um, I could get to, into it a little bit, but um, in the, the start of the Silver Era in 1961... The second most popular comic was a was a romance series. It was not a superhero oh, nice. series at all. It was um, something similar to like the Archie comics. Was the second most read comic. Mm-hmm. So interesting. And there was a there was another study that came out a couple years later showing that you know as the years went on, readers these kids that were reading comics were getting older. And that half of all comic book readers were over the years, over the age of 20. So like this population of, of kids in like the 40s grow up and keep reading comic books, which is going to see a kind of a through line that you'll see here. Um, and again, all this is context because these numbers aren't a surprise that comics were this like cultural staple due to everything taking place, which, you know, war and, and patriotism and then bad imagery, which goes with both the war and the patriotism that that we've discussed in a prior episode of <laughs> this. Yeah. Uh, 
the the one thing that I thought was also neat is that even President Roosevelt made a like a remark that applies to what we're talking about and why all these people were reading. And that was, quote, it was like this is in the mid 30s. So, quote, when the spirit of the people is lower than at any other time during this depression, it is a splendid thing for the just 15 cents an American can go to a movie and forget his troubles. So apply that same logic to a comic book. Because yeah. in the mid 30s, comic books were 10 cents, which is about two dollars now. Wow. That's so it was a, a, a third a cheap the escape. price they are today. They're like six. Yeah. Bucks. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, not to talk too much about the comic code authority, but following all this, we get to the 50s in the comic code authority era, which if you didn't listen to our last podcast, uh, basically one man argued that comics rot people's brains, poison our kids <laughs> brains. And then a bunch of old white lawmakers wanted to solve it through armchair legislation. Which yeah. always works. Always works. Yeah. Well, and the reason why I bring it up is because at that point, we see this like massive drop in readership. So over the span of a few years, the number of comic book titles being published drops by a little bit more than a half. So it was like 600 titles a year dropped down to 250 and sales overall cut in half. So readership just went down. Now, following that, when we get to the 60s and 70s, as society relaxed from those regulations, people started reading comics again um, because those kids that grew up consuming comic books were now consuming drugs. And <laughs> do, you have a, do, you have, do you have a source on that? I did not cite that, um, but that's that is I what do, I believe. I do want to note and give Todd the credit that all of his citations here do follow MLA format. If anybody was curious, <laughs> they do. It checks out. I use my degree exclusively for this podcast. <laughs> so that is kind of the where we've been. So where we are now, um, I found a study that was from 2017 um, that a person named Kristen McLean uh, presented at the New York Comic Con to kind of break down some more statistics. And so currently, and this is again like five years old, um, six percent of Americans are reading comics. So, and those are Americans aged eighteen to thirty-four. Of that, sixty-three uh, percent are purchased by reported men, uh, mm -hmm. thirty-seven by reporting women, and then fifty-seven percent of comic buyers are between the ages of thirteen to twenty-nine. So it's back mm -hmm. to being like a younger person's, okay. you know, game. Um, some other fun statistics. I had some. Here we go. Uh, so comics and graphic novel buying individuals. So 69% are reporting non-Hispanic white, 12% Latino, 10% African-American and 8% Asian. Um, and that is just overall comic purchasing. Um, comic shoppers are also likely to have some college education, 85%, which tracks with data, um, in those initial things that I had shared in like the thirties, I think it was close to like 40%, but the largest percentage has always been people who have some amount of college education. Oh, sure. Which like, when you think about it, it makes sense. Cause usually comics are pretty historically like liberal leaning, like very, yeah. very left leaning. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure a lot of that has to just do with like general media consumption as well, also, probably because that. I, yeah. I think the more educated a person is, the more media they tend to seek out. And I don't have a source on that, so I don't want to like stamp my foot in the ground. <laughs> but I think just general media consumption, 
I would guess goes up at some sort of positive correlation to education. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a positive correlation with artistic people and enjoying art more for art. that. Yeah. 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 Um, just some other fun statistics too from this, um, which again, I'll, I'll cite this in our notes. It's fun that uh, people who are buying graphic novels for superheroes largely skew male. Um, that's 78%. Whereas sure. people who buy manga are a pretty even split. It's like 56 oh. to 44. Yeah. Um, manga buyers are also typically younger. Um, and where was this last bit? Oh, so what also is interesting, women are more likely to buy non-superhero graphic novels as they get older, whereas the largest amount of reporting women who are consuming superhero stories are younger, which I think huh. probably plays into some of the rise of more female superhero leads, which I think is pretty interesting. Definitely. There was one last one last statistic that I thought was really fun here. Uh, so this is largely just reporting. Um, I, I mean, the at least the the data that I just shared now is like not just America, um, but some some worldwide fun information. In 2016, 25 percent of all printed materials in Japan came from the manga industry, which <laughs> is kind of wild is, the more you think about yeah, that yeah that is pretty wild all one fourth material. of all printed well, what media. year what years were this that was 2016 well to be fair probably one fourth of that is one piece <laughs> <laughs> so they're skewing the numbers a little bit uh yeah there's a number there i found another study that that started dipping into manga like in uh in france in 2018 uh france sold 38 percent of all manga in 2018 which like wow. that's over there, way higher than i would expect france, france, france over there getting weird i'm gonna start spreading the rumors that france loves goku <laughs> <laughs> i mean what did yeah. we just say about saying things ironically andrew damn it <laughs> i didn't make it 10 minutes but yeah, I think I think the biggest takeaway here is obviously it, when we talk about the golden age, like that's when comic books were having their heyday. Um, printed purchasing is still a major part of the comic experience. I mean, you still see those those stores that are around now. Obviously, there are different models with Marvel Unlimited. Um, but, you know, the biggest thing I would say is that the largest consumers are probably not that whatever I said, the six to 13 age or that that first age that i quoted oh yeah um oh six to eleven mm -hmm. that's probably not the biggest consumer anymore the biggest consumer is skewing a little bit older um but you know all those six to eleven year olds grew up and had kids and said hey i loved growing up reading comic books you should read comic books now too something i found when we get hit about the late 80s early 90s as we get into um the the collectible aspect of comics really Absolutely. drives uh, drives sales at that point. So I wouldn't be surprised if today a bulk of actual com new comic purchases are by whales um, who mm. buy a lot of comics as they come out and may not necessarily make up readership, but keep the industry afloat just buying var variant covers and new issues just, just in case, you know, the next... Wolverine comes out of 
the a new comic today. They want to have mm. have those ready to go. Um, well, and I wonder, I wonder how it shows up with, you know, like you said, these whales that are buying up these huge blocks of of comics when they then turn them around through a comic book store. Yeah, because I'm I'm just thinking of Andrew and I were at a comic book store in Canton not that long yeah. ago. And a a man like walked us through his collection. He's like, that there is 10,000 comic books yep. that I need oh to boy. sort and categorize. Like, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. he a data point? Is his store a data point? Is it both? Yeah. Because based Whoa. upon based upon that, there's a there's a significant percent of comic book buyers who are this well, man. I mean, Canton. that's that's how yeah. that's how business that's how companies will define sales. Like they're selling to wholesalers, right? Like mm-hmm. yeah. that's the sales. Yeah. All right. Anything else to wrap up, Todd? Or are you? No, that's that's them's, what I got you for statistics. The, the, the kids, stats. the kids, the kids were reading, and kids don't read books anymore. Ah, those dang kids! Don't want <laughs> to work. Kids. Don't want to read books anymore. They're they're hanging out all day with their with their iPods and their Mortal Kombat. It's me. <laughs> I'm kids. I I swear. <laughs> I swear to God, Andrew, I thought you were going to say they're hanging out with their iPods and their Morbiuses. <laughs> and their no. Morbii. It's Morbii no. now. Stop it. No. Yeah. We we really need to stop with that. Hey, remember what we said about not doing things ironically? I do. Here we are doing things ironically. Okay. So <laughs> moving on from, from Todd's uh, great st- collection of stats, um, I'm going to kind of walk us through a a quick history of um women in comics um i know this is the topic kind of presents a quick history of women a quick history <laughs> of women i know this the topic is like gender in comics um i think we all yeah. can see with our with our very functional yeah. eyes how men are represented in comics and like we, we don't, yeah we get it we, like, <laughs> we don't have to cover that it, side of it. a lot of no. a lot of it is is wrapped up in like male power fantasy and and, and that's about it um, that, there's men's representation in comics, so uh, we'll spend a little time on women's representation in comics, and then we'll take a quick break and come back to cover um, trans and non-binary representation in comics as well. Um, so I will, like Todd, take us back to the beginning, because it's a very good place to start and talk about the golden age of comics again. Um So as I said before, the golden age of comics is uh, considered the t- period of time uh, from comic strips moving, evolving past single strip vignettes into short stories or comic books, um, and ends about the time of the comic code, the comics code authority takes place. So generally from the 1930s to the end of the 1950s, um, in the, in the beginning at this time, uh, comic books were not entirely dominated by superhero stories, um, but had things like, uh, there were very popular romance comic books and like teen slice of life comics as well um think like your archie comics um that was a very popular style of comics um so the representation of women in the romance and kind of slice of life comics was a tad better than um the superhero side it was still very like traditional gender norms of the time but like there were women characters doing things and like talking about stuff other than men passing the Bechdel test and all that. So it was a decent time. Um, even if you think about how old it was. Um, however, in superhero comics, 
of the time, women were typically secondary characters or love, quote unquote, love interests um, in parentheses, trophies to be won by men when they did when they yeah. beat the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So these women were typically like career minded women. Um, and through World War Two, we did see women in um, more job roles than previously or prior to as that's what women were doing in real life. Uh, they were going to work in factories and and offices and banks. So comics of the time reflected that. Um, and this um, kind of ties back to what Todd was saying, where like readership was more on an even keel, where like men and rem- women at the time both sort of equally read comics. So that is reflected in uh, the stories they told. Um, there were the books and characters aimed at women um, were, were titles like Nellie the Nurse, Tessie the Typist, and Millie the oh. Model. <laughs> so not super cool. great. If you scroll down a bit, I have a picture of the of a cover of Millie the Model um, a little later in the notes. Um, and from what I saw of these, um, if you guys are familiar at all with the Kathy comic strips, that's about the level mm-hmm. of writing these like female-focused mm. comics awesome. had. Where like... Great. Uh, Millie the model would would come into frame like I just got back from the salon and her friend would say well you should go back to the salon and tell him to give you a refund yuck 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 and like that was the <laughs> classic comedy yeah that's the that's the extent um it was just just gals being gals written by white men <laughs> of course um so this is around the time the Archie comics began um where we see like two very main characters, Betty and Veronica, um, and every every appearance, they were competing for the attention of a man, specifically Gross. Archie. Um, the two would then later get their own spinoff comic where they would continue to vie for the attention of, of Archie and other male characters. Um, Betty and Veronica are kind of a good representation of the two female archetypes that persisted at this time, with Betty being kind of the sweet demure quote-unquote good girl and veronica being the more forward and confrontational quote-unquote bad girl um the the blonde and the brunette as represented Mm -hmm. in any media source from the 50s in 1941 we get wonder woman our first um long-standing female superhero uh we did have other female heroes in at this time with characters like the Invisible Scarlet O'Neil, Fantoma, and Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. Um, Sheena looks rad. Yeah, yeah Sheena, Sheena, looks Sheena is like next under Wonder Woman as far as like longevity and like pretty decent in its representation. Yeah. Um, I've got a quote here from Trina Robbins, who wrote the book The Great Women Superheroes. Uh, most of fiction, most of fiction houses, pulp style action stories, fiction house being one of the major comic book uh, uh, publishers at the time, either starred or featured strong, beautiful, competent heroines. They were war nurses, aviatrixes, girl detectives, counter spies, and animal skin clad jungle queens. They were in command. Guns blazing, daggers unsheathed, sword in hand, they leapt across the pages ready to take on any villain, and they did not need rescuing. 
Um, so what you don't see here is Sheena is like eleven feet tall. Yeah, I just don't say it. Um, yeah, Sheena is a is a the Amazonian queen trope for sure. Some um, real step on me energy coming out of the 1960s. That's right. 1950s. They were just ahead, still yeah, this was golden age. Sorry, That's 1950s. It. Lady yeah. Lady Sheena Trescu. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so Wonder Woman obviously is the most enduring female hero character from this era, most recently having two blockbuster movie releases in 2017 and 2020. Um Wonder Woman was created by William Moulton Marston and his wife, Elizabeth Halloway, after uh, Elizabeth Halloway pointed out to her husband uh, that Superman and Batman and Green Lantern dominated the sales. Why, why can't a woman hero be on the same keel as them? And he was like, good point, dear. And they uh, went to uh, what was DC Comics at the time and, and pitched Wonder Woman. Um, so Wonder Woman for its time was actually pretty progressive in some ways. The, the Mm -hmm. Amazons were shown to be, they were created by the goddess Aphrodite to be stronger and wiser than men. And they like frequently showed these, these Amazon women, like outsmarting men, besting men in physical feats. Um, However, the, the comic is not without its, its problems. Uh, The early issues of wonder woman attempted commentary on women's suffrage using Wonder Woman's bracers as sort of a metaphor for the systemic oppression of women at the time. And you ran into stories and things like if Wonder Woman's bracers were bound by a chain or later her golden lasso, she loses all her powers and became quote, as weak as a normal woman. Um, if the bracers were, no, that's how they went with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if the bracers were removed, she would lose control of her emotions and fly into violent mood swings and irrational actions, trying to state, trying to make this claim that like, but we must keep, we must keep an eye on our women still. They can't be fully independent or they'll, yeah, it's, it's still yeah. the the forties and fifties. That was it's... so close. They were so close. <laughs> well, and then, yeah. And that's like, that's, she's hysterical. That's what I thought too. When, when Cal was like, Oh, they're a metaphor for systematic, Oppression. I'm like, okay, like, go on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait yeah, for oh, it. Oh, too far, then, too far. <laughs> nope, nope, yeah, no, yeah. That's enough slices. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, these the stories of this time did see um, Diana Prince, uh, Wonder Woman's alter ego, and Wonder Woman in roles such as um, there's a whole story where she was the president of the United States and she was a modern day Incan priestess goddess um which you know that has its own racial implications that aren't great but was like a a high role for a woman to hold at the time of being like this this high religious figure um Mm -hmm. so as we moved through as we moved ahead in time as the character was handed off to other writers as we go through like the silver and bronze age of comics um they they diminished her powers and had Diana Prince um, fall into more traditional roles for w- women at the time. Um, some of which being a uh, Diana Prince had a long stretch where she was a babysitter as her alter ego career. Wow. And as a fashion Incredible. model as her alter ego career as well. Great. Um, Things and then one, that women do. Things yeah, women work. do, guys, right? Um, 
With, and then one issue even has like Diana Prince give a whole internal thought monologue talking about a new mother and how she envies that woman's life as a mother and wife and wishes to, to give like. up her role as Wonder Woman, Amazonian princess. As a literal or, god. As right. a literal yeah. god, like creation of the gods to fight crime, to be a mother and wife. So... If only I, I could bone Chris Pine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. we've all said that. So yeah, I mean, like I, I would give Oops, up God's status us. for that, but you know, here's here's what gets me is like I realize we're talking about things that happened in the past. Like a number of the things we're going to talk about whenever we have discussions like these are like, well, these in the past and things have gotten, and the next word is either somewhat better, much better, way better, hopefully better soon. <laughs> but like I when I when I read these things and hear about these things, I'm just like, who, who was like stamp of approval, put it out the door. Yeah. Like I just yeah. imagine this like devilish overweight white dude with a cigar in his <laughs> mouth. Who's like, yeah. like, yeah, this is what woman will consume this type of media. And like, who allowed this? Like, it's just so incredible. We, I mean, you know the answer, but it's yeah. kind of like when you look at anything in American history, we are like, Oh well, it's gonna get better. It's gonna get better. It's, it's, <laughs> it's gonna the, get better. It's the Anakin right? meme. It's the yeah. yeah. It's the Hayden Christensen. Like, yeah. But it's gonna get better, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah. So so as I said earlier, the end of the golden age of comics is typically marked by the the Comic Code Authority coming into place, which saw a even further reduction of the like, literal one, fun police. The literal yeah. fun police, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which saw like saw. Even more power reduction from Wonder Woman, a removal of just other female characters' stories entirely, um, and and part of that is like written in the comics code authority was that they did not want female characters to be on an even plane as the male characters, like flat out written into the into the the verbiage of the act or whatever. It was like. Um, it is contributing to juvenile delinquency to have women equal to men in these stories. Um, and I have a quote here from Friedrich Wortham, who who wrote a book that heavily influenced the mm -hmm. Comics Code Authority, where he says, uh, they are not homemakers, they being the women they're talking about in these stories, they are not homemakers, they do not bring up a family. Mother love is entirely absent, even when... Wonder Woman adopts a girl. There are lesbian overtones, just like really casting shade on any portrayal of, of women as anything other than a mother or wife. I'm going to go curious, out on a limb. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and, and guess. You don't have to tell me that I'm right because I know I'm right. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that this man talked a lot about Jesus. Yeah. In his yeah, day. A whole he, lot about Jesus. So, and, and again, just in case you want more to look up, um, that book was called Seduction of the Innocent. Yeah. And it was, it was oh, effectively, God. it's effectively the like video games create violent kids yeah. argument mm -hmm. only sure. 70 years ago. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's an argument that we've, that every generation has had. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This, I don't understand this new media. Therefore it's, it's ruining yeah. our children and families and should be removed entirely yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh so from there we move into the silver age of comics um this is starts in the early 60s uh we've got the comics code authority in full swing 
and female representation in comics takes a regressive turn, let's say. Uh, DC literally had it, its in-house editorial policy stating, the inclusion of females in stories is specifically discouraged. Women, when used in plot structure, should be secondary in importance and should be drawn realistically without exaggeration of feminine physical qualities. Um, they wanted very Which... plain women in their stories. <laughs> Since since we're since we just got done talking mostly about the Comics Code Authority, it's probably a good point to make here as well. We say it in the the show every now and again. Comics Code Authority was the thing that started. You don't show divorce in comics. Yeah. So like the reason why you'll have single parents is not because there was ever a divorce. It's because someone died. Yeah, a parent died because you don't died. see divorces mm. can't happen. Yeah. For anybody else like me who is curious what year we're talking about on the Wikipedia age for Silver Age, it says 1956. 1956 okay. started the Silver Age of comics. Okay. Yep, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, so despite uh, DC having some of these policies, authors did try to sneak as much progressive representation of women through the censors as they could. Um, a quick reminder that when I say progressive, I mean progressive in the face of the restrictions they had to operate under. These portrayals yep. were not not really even that progressive for the time. There was other more progressive media, but to the white men in power setting these rules, these examples would be considered progressive and the authors did their best to like fight to keep those in. So Yeah. It it's, goes It's like when somebody dies in a Disney Plus show. It's yeah. not a big deal, but it's a big deal in context. Yeah. 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 Um, so in addition to having like Lois Lane being Clark, Clark Kent's career rival, um, other superheroes from this time had women in these positions of power, like over the secret identities of the male characters. So like they weren't fighting crime with Superman, but like Lois Lane was always there to, to take Clark Kent down a few pegs. Uh, Vicki Vale, the reporter would call out Bruce Wayne on his like million millionaire playboy shenanigans mm -hmm. um the ray palmer the adam had a girlfriend lean gene loring who was a lawyer and would you know they would work together on like the the law part of the crime fighting they would do um hal jordan answered to carol ferris and uh aeronautics uh executive at the time so like they tried. They tried to put these women in positions of power. They just weren't allowed to do much more than have like this side character, the main hero, had to answer to from time to time, being uh, the character. Um, this was also the the advent kind of start of the female versions of male heroes trope, um, where we we got Batwoman and Supergirl yeah. and. Um, those are the those are the big two that came out that started the they're, trope. Their defining characteristic being that they were a woman. They were a version. Woman. Of, yes, yeah. um, they were typically yeah. weaker than the main hero. Went on more women focused stories when they went out solo, and typically existed to mess up, get caught, and have the hero rescue them later. Um, mm. Super not great. Um, yeah. The the Silver Age is um, very is defined a lot of the time by the birth of Marvel. Atlas Comics becomes Marvel Comics in 1961. 
um, and is launched with the Fantastic Four under its new name, um, a superhero family that included a woman among its ranks on the team from the very beginning, Sue Storm, the Invisible Girl. Um, it's still not perfect. It's not great, but um, Sue could only turn invisible. She didn't have any like uh, um, offensive type powers right and still often fell into the damsel in distress role needed to be saved by her male companions um i think i vaguely remember we brought this up maybe last time we did this but because you you had mentioned the force field powers thing that was retconned later right yes and i'll i I believe so yeah that comes up later on um but yeah she she frequently did the did the like mother and wife thing and the like man, I wish I could give up superheroing to raise a child and um, just a a lot of, a lot of like, I better turn invisible to hide from the enemy. Oh, I got hit in the head and I'm unconscious now. Like just a lot of that. It's not great. Yikes. Um, Marvel would then introduce the X-Men two years later, which also included a woman in their initial lineup, which was Marvel girl. Uh, Marvel girl was better written than Sue Storm in the, some aspects, but was still did a lot of the same. A lot of ended up as damsel in distress. Um, this takes us into the Bronze Age, which is like the mid-70s <laughs> into the late 80s, early 90s. Um, this saw an, an increase of social awareness, awareness among comic book, book authors. This is kind of the big, like, huge heyday of comics where you get the there's just books on books, teams on teams, powers on powers, etc. Um, because the authors were trying, we did see more standalone women characters, changes to these characters to make them more distinct and more equal in power and agency to their male counterparts. We saw more um, heroes of color, um, just in general more representation was coming out in the characters of the books. They all were still written predominantly by white men. So it's getting better. It's still not perfect. Um, one author who gets a lot of credit for put this push forward at this time is Chris Claremont, a writer for X-Men in the 70s. Um, he's so influential. There was a term that came up in my research, research called Claremont women, um, where like, he wrote this type of woman that, like, Jean Grey became Rogue, Storm, Emma Frost, Kitty Pride are all kind of these Claremont women that are very, they're, they're smart, they're powerful, they mm-hmm. stand up to men. And for the first time since the Golden Age, we have women kind of, like, jockeying back into some top spots in comic books Which- again. Which is, is, I mean, just by definition, things you've shared, some of my favorite characters watching the cartoons growing up are yeah. the women of the X-Men. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, we all dunk on Cyclops, but like, <laughs> I mean. No, we all be, dunk on Beast now. Uh, yeah, Beast, Beast, Beast is the one now. in the, the Beast is the circle. new dunk, yeah. dunk recipient. Um, but, I mean, looking back on the, the 90s era X-Men, I loved Rogue. Yeah. Like, yeah. like incredible. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Um, this is this is in kind of contrast to DC. DC was doing more of the just like woman version of the male character, of the male hero. They might get their own story, um, and we'll get into 
some of those stories here once I wrap this, the X-Men up. But um, the, the Marvel was doing a lot of the like heavy lifting in terms of moving things forward, getting the ball rolling forward again. Um, we had things like Jean Grey went from being called Marvel Girl to becoming Phoenix, who's like this near omnipotent power. Um, right. <laughs> Sue Storm changed her moniker to Invisible Woman, uh, became more self-assertive, a little more independent of Reed. Um, and this is where the force field powers are kind of added to her repertoire as well. So she's able to do more than just like vanish out of sight when things get hairy. Um, yeah. Storm, Aurora Monroe, that, that character in general was, um, you know, a, a black woman had very powerful powers, was a very prominent member of the X-Men. Um, and that we also see like Emma Frost, Kitty Pride, Rogue and Psylocke all under this kind of umbrella of Claremont women um, on the Marvel side. Uh, DC sees some separation of female characters from the male counterpart. Uh, Supergirl became Power Girl in this era. Batwoman got a whole origin story of becoming the Oracle in Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. Um, Unfortunately... This goes into follows the trend of women characters needing to go through some kind of trauma to complete their self actualization, which and um, to complete Bruce Wayne's self actualization and, and to complete yeah, another yeah. character's self actualization as part of their own. Yeah, um, we also see an increased trend of sexualization of these female characters. Uh, many of the trends in female characters at this time come from the male author's understanding of the women's liberation movement, which the women's liberation movement did include some amount of a woman's ownership of her expression of her sexual sexuality as one of her like rights and um, ability, like, you know, tools she has as a woman to exert in the, in the world. Um, this unfortunately was often understood by white men at the time as um, empowered women have a lot of promiscuous sex and are hot. And that's what was reflected in the comics. So, uh, that began in the late seventies as well. So does that mean Kyle, we're going to talk about boob windows? <laughs> the boob windows are coming up, Andrew. Oh boy. Um, so, it kills me. Like this is another moment. Like Todd had pointed out earlier where they're always so close. But at so the same close. time, so embarrassingly yeah. far away. Well, and you just, and you just see fumble this, at the six yard line. Yeah, and you see this like, I I I don't have data to back this up, but this intentional misinterpretation of what the liber women's liberation movement was trying to convey, like this right. is mm-hmm. a lot of t- like not maybe not necessarily for each and every one of these specific authors, but like. From the higher ups above them, they yeah, it was yeah. an intentional misinterpretation of of that concept. Into, yeah, I mean, women want to be sexy. We'll make them sexy. Like, yeah, for, mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of connections to video games because like we've mm-hmm. we've all I mean we also talk about video games and like that video games were 30 years trending after after this stuff. So like it, yeah. this happens in every you know genre, but like that's the downfall of like, they still have to make money and you know, the stats don't lie. Right. So if 65% of your audience are 
teenage boys. Yep. Hmm. Money, money talks and money says have the boob window, but then that is a self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. right? Because it, it completely like blocks out an entire audience. So yeah, that's why 65% of your <laughs> audience are teenage boys because mm-hmm. so, you know, it's just because you're chasing and, specifically and, chasing them. Yeah. Cause you're chasing mm-hmm. that. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's all got the energy of like the, the shitty execs upstairs. Like mm-hmm. someone kicks the door and is like, did you hear what progressive nonsense they're doing <laughs> yeah. down in B wing? Yeah. Let's go yeah. get them. Like, yeah, we, we hear you're empowering women, huh? Oh, we'll show you. Well, we can't we'll have that. You. Yeah. Um, Says yeah. our rainbow colored Twitter profile. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, it feels bad. Oh, feels, God, I'm so Feels angry. real bad. All right. So from there, we move into what is called the modern age of comics. Um, this loosely began in the mid 90s um, and is defined by fan influence and therefore more fan ownership of the characters. Uh, you can see a similar trend in music where like rather than chasing one big hit that's going to connect with the entire population all at once um more and more creators were aiming for a very specific niche and trying to tap into more niche interests uh so uh, comic book authors were no longer writing a few major titles aimed at the masses but many smaller titles that were aimed at more specific markets um and fans had more communicate more open communication and more sway with over characters they liked because this was also the advent of like the internet and like authors would go on these fan forums and like see what people liked about their characters and wrote more of that rather than like wait six months for letters to the editor to come in and start reacting long after the story's half written um we Things do get more iffy representation-wise as there was an increased incentive to target female readers because you were chasing smaller demographics you hadn't previously reached. But pressure from above, from the the people who really make the money, to use sex to sell titles. Uh, so you get these characters that are meant to be these like female power icons that also have hypersexualized designs. Andrew, this is where you're your boob window comes in. Uh, this is the where, reign of Rob Liefeld. <laughs> um, this is where Rob Liefeld and Joss Whedon, uh, two sides of the same coin of this era really come oh, into boy. play. <laughs> oh <laughs> um, man. How, how uncomfortably true that is. Yeah. So um, for those of you, one not, is just more defiantly vascular than the other. Yeah. Rob, <laughs> Rob Liefeld. It was a very popular nineties comic artist who um drew all of his characters just in this like hyper defined way so all the men Todd, throw the captain america yeah there. You throw the captain america yeah. all the men it's had the had muscles on top of their muscles yeah. and like a gigantic bulge in their crotch yeah. and and captain america's neck looks like todd's thighs <laughs> yeah more guns strapped to their body you. than like a military outfit and like your body has room for <laughs> and this and is the, the female characters had had waists that were smaller than their wrists and like were bent into these yeah. impossible yes. poses so you could see there their, he is yeah <laughs> our boy <laughs> um yeah we've got we've got super chest day captain america in the notes now 
Um, but the female I didn't character... notice that even his shield has balls. <laughs> like what <laughs> <in> the world? <laughs> Uh, he looks like he looks like there's an alien literally bursting out of his chest. Yeah, he looks oh, un- wait, unhealthy more. and uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, for those not looking at our notes, which again you can join, uh, you can get access to over at Patreon.com/slash/DebateThisCast and join hashtag ButtThwomp uh, Nation. Get to work on that. Uh, we got an IRL version of Chris Evans blown up as Rob Liefeld's Captain yeah. America in our notes. Or, I mean, you can you can Google it too. I'm just gonna put this in our Patreon <laughs> without any context. Okay. Right no now. context. Um, and then yeah. in the spirit of of equality here, here is a one of Rob Liefeld's more famous female design characters. So this is Psylocke, yeah. as drawn by Rob Liefeld, mm-hmm. who has. Her, who is her body contorted in a way that you can see both her boobs and her ass at the same time. Um, I was yeah. just going to say, really yeah, kinda, most of that ass is exposed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've yeah. been going to the chiropractor for four weeks trying to fix the same problem. <laughs> that he, it, she's got the tiniest strip of purple in between yep. the cheeks to denote that she's not just straight up naked. She's, mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the, that's Rob Liefeld representing the art of the time. And then you have Joss Whedon, who's also writing comics and TV shows during this time doing the, like the very, I'm a woman. I am, I am, I can kick just as much ass as the men, but then I have to fix my nails afterwards, uh, type of feminism Mm -hmm. that was popular at the time, which is also really terrible and bad. So, um, just a whole lot of whole lot of bad uh, during the '90s. The drive into more niche markets did prop up more independent comic book makers at this time, and we have um, and a lot of independent comic book makers take their cues from kind of the success of Tank Girl, which is a very popular early '90s comic that used um, the that relied on like the punk aesthetic. She had short asymmetrical hair dressed in kind of like chunkier clothing and um, drove a tank, which is really badass. Um, cool. And Sick. Th- this kind of this punk aesthetic would also filter its way into the big two to become the mold for like your like your sometimes non-binary or you're like your your rejecting of the woman of the male gaze type characters, which started to appear in comics as well. Um, and then in 1999, we get the website women in refrigerators, uh, which launched with (laughs) women in refrigerators. So this, um, this was a website launched with the objective of calling out how common it was in comic books for female superheroes to have sexual assault, serious injury, or losing their powers as a, trope of their self-actualization and how often women Mm. women's trauma and death was only served the self-actualization of the male characters like andrew said earlier which Um, which if you if you want to hear more about that i know we did talk fairly extensively about that in our 
uh, last outing of social justice in our social in, justice and comics com- episode, in comics, yeah. which which we'll link in the show notes. Um, I think we we ultimately even put uh, trigger warnings at the top of it mm-hmm. because there's like heavy shit. Yeah, yeah. The um, the easy example that I always give is like Gwen Stacy. Gwen Stacy yeah. only exists to die. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you were curious, women in refrigerators still live. Still sure. looks like it's 1999. Sure. Um, now that that is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, this this website, Women in Refrigerators, does begin um, kind of transitions thing starts to transition transition things into the what I'm calling the current age. This wasn't a clearly defined age, but like we start to get some of that. Like, hey, we're we are rep we as women and people of color and um, people of the LGBTQ community also want like comics and we want to read more comics that aren't terrible, that don't have terrible representations of who we are in them. Um, women in refrigerators really kicked that off as by drawing attention to just how like male focused comic books, straight white male focused comic books had been up to that point and starts this trend of like moving comics away from the male gaze, even slightly. Um, So that will bring us into the current age, kind of loosely the late aughts to now. Um, This is a lesson. Post-MCU. Post-MCU. That's kind of where I defined the kickoff was like, if you take take where Iron Man comes out as the current age of comics, it's a pretty good idea. Um. So while the movies themselves take some time to catch up with the ideas started in the books, uh, the late aughts and early 2010s saw a significant increase in the in positive representation of women, non-binary, and trans authors and characters in comics. Um, kind of the leading force during this time in both Marvel, he, they wrote for both Marvel and DC, um, is Grant Morrison. Um who has since come out as non-binary. He was presenting mail at the time, announced, came out as non-binary more recently. Um, And even before their coming out would include more gender non-conforming and non-binary characters in their books. Um, Specifically when they wrote for the new X-Men, there were a lot of like these new X-Men that were like non-gender conforming or had androgynous designs and even included, um, I think the Professor Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters even included moving beyond the gender binary as like one of their ultimate goals of like removing oppression. They, they recognized the gender binary was a system of oppression like racism, like uh, capitalism and anything else in those stories. It's... It's probably worth adding as well that right around, I think it was the early 2000s is when Marvel stopped paying attention to the Comics Code Authority. Yes. And yeah, it was the early 2010s when basically everyone else did as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this era also sees kind of the subversion of more popular characters. Um, so this is a time where a lot of longstanding characters like titles change hands. Um, so you see like Jane Foster as Thor is during this era, uh, which is going to be a major plot point in Thor Love and Thunder coming up. 
um, you see, we see Pepper Potts assuming the the role of Iron Man after having been rescued for a, a an arc or whatever, which is referenced in Iron Man Three, Spider Man Homecoming, and Avengers Endgame. Um, there's a lot of this going on. This is where we get the um, the Captain America Hail Hydra arc. Um, just a lot of subversion of long-standing white heroes starts to change to start just start getting some fresh faces and and new ideas into these stories. Uh, was this this was probably the time when Miles Morales yep. um, hit the scene as well? Yeah, Miles Morales is during this era. There's a lot of great examples that I do not have in here just because sure, sure. of yeah. time. Yeah, Birds of Prey. Birds, Birds of yeah. Prey, mm-hmm. uh, the all-female anti-hero team mm-hmm. um, was introduced during this time. Um, it's, I have it, it's important to note, I don't know how important it is, but a trend during this time was that um, a quick way to telegraph that your comic was progressive was by having one of your characters be a lesbian. Um, that is, uh-huh. yeah, it's, it's, it's both good and, and not at, good. Look at yeah. you, X-Men. Looking we at see you. you. Um, well, we it, see you out there. I didn't know it, we were going to talk about tokenism today, but here we are. <laughs> well, it just it seems like it's one of those things where I don't want to assume any good intent for a corporation. Like, let right. me get that out there to start. And so I don't think that it's altruistic that they're like, oh, we'll have a lesbian couple. Like, that's really nice. I feel like someone is like, no, no, no. It'll be good. If we have a lesbian cup, like it wasn't, it's, it just it's, doesn't, it doesn't it's feel both. authentic. And yeah, it, like things the, can both the, be bad and kind of good, but the still. authors who want, yeah. who want more representation get, uh, get a, a quote unquote win because they win. are including this, this, um, same sex relationship. The, While a CEO gets to pat themselves on the, the back. CEO gets to pat themselves on the back, but at the same time, yeah. like, Women, women, and women relationships are much more palatable to mass audiences than right. you know, on male relationships, and and then you always have the possibility. You now that we set up these two characters as lesbians, maybe we'll get to have a sexy uh, um, centerfold image of mm-hmm. them now, mm-hmm. and like, yeah. so it you get it's it's not great, guys. Just, well, and again, like it, you said, uh, you know women on women relationships are more palatable to the general audience. I think again, like the conception there is that that's more palatable to the largely male audience that they Mm -hmm. have at the time. And I think we should not, we should not call. I don't think relationships is a good word. I think women on women sex was palatable. Yeah. Yeah, That's Mm -hmm. yeah. It's not like people at that time were interested in an LGBT story. Nobody's reading for like sapphic love. in There was, you know, I mean, there was the beginning of the demand for that. This this was a time where like mm-hmm. more and more people were coming out as gay and more and more there was more and more push to include that. But we were also in the throes of, um, you know, until 2008 or 2012, same sex marriage was not legal. So like, yeah, you had mm-hmm. you it's a it was a very like give and take type of thing. And like most of those. They took a lot more than they gave. So, I mean, I think I think it should be noted, like even being able to say the word gay in popular culture, in mainstream culture, is younger than any of us are. Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. Because mm-hmm. like we were all alive when Ellen was canceled when she came out. 
You know what yeah, I mean? Not yeah. the TV show because she was canceled for because she's apparently a monster. But like, yeah. you're not like the, the, the sitcom, <laughs> right? Yes. That's yeah. how you. That's how you measure society in dis, in yeah. like in duration of history of like well. How many times this... of Ellen's cancellation have you been alive? Yeah, for? yeah. How many? Yeah. yeah. You just asked somebody, how many times has Ellen been canceled? <laughs> what what do you know Ellen is you... canceled for? If the answer is two, you remember 9 11. Anyway, um... <laughs> this is the example I gave Todd off air was that this was the same time that, like, Family Guy was considered mildly progressive when it told a gay right. joke because right. it said yeah. gay yeah. on TV. This was a time when the yeah. character on South Park. Big Gay Al was considered progressive because progressive, they right. called him Big Gay Al. Like, and he had Big Gay Al's Big Gay Animal Sanctuary. Big, yep. Yeah. Yep. And like, yep. we've come a long, we've come a long way in a short amount we've of time. We've come a long way. Um, but this, like, it is important to note that, like, at this time, we were so regressed in this area that, right. like, we couldn't, you couldn't say. Mm -hmm gay on a show rated for anything less than t like tvma or rated r a lot of times if you had if you included that your show was for adults only um so that's why i say like yes obviously these were this was woman on woman sexual relationships intended for the male gaze but it was also the very first chance that gay characters were portrayed regularly in a medium so that's where we were with that we're gonna take a quick break hey deja what if we started a podcast but if we did that we'd have to be an incredible hosting duo and both hosts would need a background in studying media right yeah plus hot takes and passion that goes well past academics well what would we call it Welcome to Screen Studies with Deja and Justin. I'm Deja. And I'm Justin. This is the podcast where we talk about how the things on our screens affect our culture. And how our culture affects what's on our screen. Whether you're seeking conversations on TV, movies, or social media, you can find new episodes of Screen Studies every Monday on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. Um... I would be remiss to do an episode on gender in comics without talking about uh, non-binary and trans representation in comics. Um, in the big two specifically, there isn't a lot to work with, or and if there's more to work with, I had a hard time finding it. So if you listen to this and are like, Kyle, you forgot this major thing, this good, great example, please let me know. I would love to hear about it. Um, because I had a, I had a hard time researching this topic and getting more than a handful of names and of those names, only a, a smaller representation of them wrote more than one or two comics. For An issue properties. of a book. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, so we'll start with some authors, uh, in both DC and Marvel. I brought up earlier, we have Grant Morrison. Uh, Grant Morrison, again, recently, I think 2020, 2019, around that time, came out as non-binary. Uh, Grant Morrison wrote long stretches of Batman, Superman, and Justice League comics in the early, early to mid-2000s. 
um, and was the executive producer for most, if not all, of the Arrowverse properties, starting with Arrow, The Flash, um, Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow. I'm sure there's two other shows in that lineup. Some of those things are are very good. Yeah, they are. They're it's it's they're all on the CW. They're all wrapping up right now. Um, they're and some are starring an alleged kidnapper. <laughs> yeah, and some of them are nope, not good. <laughs> not that. Not that Flash. Different Flash. Is yeah, not that. Oh, different okay. Flash. Sorry, yeah, different Flash. Grant Grant Gustin yeah, is fine still. Um, yeah, okay. mm-hmm. I'm but so Grant, sorry, Grant Gustin. <laughs> um, uh, different Grant. Grant Morrison also wrote Doom Patrol, which is also yes. a DC thing oh, doing yes. very well yeah. these days. That does not involve an alleged kidnapper. Nope. Do you think it's so that, easy to not be an alleged kidnapper, you guys? <laughs> do what are the odds that if the Flash movie comes out, that the last scene is just Grant? What's his name? Gustin? Gustin? Gust, that Grant Gustin just shows up as the new Flash, and they never pretend anything I, happened. <laughs> I think I think Grant Gustin a, has been hinting a million for dollar years idea. that he is very done portraying Flash. Um, I think he's yeah. ready. He's been doing it for close to a decade now and is ready to move on. Oh my God. Um, so Grant Morrison is um, also wrote a long, a multi-year stretch of new X-Men um, for Marvel. Um, so they've got their, they've got their hands kind of in both of the big two. Um, they, they have been in the comics industry for 20 plus years. They um, have, you can see evidence of them, working through their gender identity in through issues of the comics um, and due to them working through some of those issues and the, the language available to us at the times and the times they were writing in, not all of those expressions of gender identity are super great. Um, There are missteps along the way. Uh, Grant would be the first to, acknowledge and apologize for those but they they are important to bring up because of their influence on the last 20 years of comic books um also right writing for dc we have zoe quinn of of gamergate fame who wrote several issues of the series goddess mode um marvel has author Chris, crystal frazier who um, wrote is is about to launch the gam- a an arc of Gamma Flight um, is a is a trans author. Um, she also wrote for the new Dune movie. She was a writer on Dune. So um, big big players writing for Marvel and DC still today. Um, and then some characters um, we in DC a big one that I um, I talked about it when we did the Sandman flavor text. Um, Desire, one of the seven endless from the Sandman series, is canonically non-binary, first appearing in 1989 as a non-binary character. Uh, Neil Gaiman has insisted on the character's first androgyny at the time and then later non-binary status as our lexicon kind of evolved and has insisted on casting a non-binary actor in the role for the upcoming Netflix project. So, that character's identity as non-binary is very important to the author. Um, That's cool. Yeah, that is cool. Uh, Gaiman is also typically credited with the trend in DC Comics for its angelic characters to be non-binary, um, although the term used initially is sexless. Um, 
because the angels have are are beyond such have human trappings. Gender, yeah, yeah sure. Mm-hmm. As gender. Um, this is how he wrote the angels in the Sandman series, and DC more or less has continued that trend today. Um, another interesting thing I found, and I don't think Gaiman created the character, but did write Constantine, the John Constantine, the character for a while. John Constantine is um one of the first bisexual characters in comics, first huh. hmm. revealing himself to be bisexual in 1992. Um, so, Neil Gaiman, again, not perfect. Part of that is because he's a cishet white man, and part of that is because of the times he was written. Has made missteps along the way, and again, we would be the first to acknowledge that. But a, a an attempt, a solid attempt by a major property to um, include non-binary and trans characters in their works um another good one from dc matt we've brought up before why don't you talk about danny the street matt oh i'd yeah. love to talk about danny the street <laughs> hopefully you listeners G- have been here for an hour just to get your danny the street type five my favorite sentient non-binary geographical location danny the street uh danny the street was created Actually, maybe now that we've talked about it, knowing that Grant Morrison wrote Doom Patrol, they might have been the one to create Danny the Street. That was kind of that would feel right. That Um, was under under list of characters created of Grant Morrison was Danny the Street. So excellent, yeah. So Danny the Street is literally a sentient block of street. Usually, usually they are a sentient. (laughs) block of street sometimes they're a brick sometimes they're a world sometimes they're an amusement park we did a whole episode about uh not directly danny the street but we talked about them a lot and we can probably link that in the show notes but in general danny the street is this kind of like i don't know cosmic being that exists as a sentient street with shops and people who live there and is canonically non-binary, uses they, them pronouns, and communicates through, like, street signs and stuff. And one of the initial really defining characteristics of Danny the Street in the art was this mix between hyper-masculine storefronts with hyper-feminine uh design Dressings. and art yeah, yeah. so you yeah. know danny the street had a, a guns and surplus store that was covered in pink flowers with cursive writing and was really just a a, a way to put gender fuckery in comics but also yeah. is a street i it's just really like danny the street <laughs> Um, I think you brought up in the episode where we first talk about Danny the Street too. One of the one of the things they sh- showed in the comics was like Danny the Street was very very welcoming to anyone outcast specifically by their because of their gen- their sexual orientation or gender identity, and was very welcoming yeah. to people you know not welcome at at their homes because of who they are. Um, which right again as, feels a lot like Grant Morrison working through some things, but is also very very cool. A very cool yeah for trait. sure. As a uh, sentient location, there are people that live 
on, in, within, <laughs> unclear. <laughs> live live mm-hmm. with Danny the street and move around as Danny the street moves around. And yeah, those people are largely outcasts who have found homes, again, in, on, within, Danny. I don't like in. I don't like language. That one. Language is failing us in this context, and mm-hmm. we haven't we haven't evolved with, our language to to the, to the correct the correct preposition is with. It's okay. it's with or within for sure. Yeah. Um, and then the last um, the last character I wanted to talk about on the DC side is a um, is a trans character, Nia Nall or Dreamer is is her superhero alias. Um, And she was specifically, she is specifically from the Arrowverse show Supergirl. Um, She has since appeared in comics, but it's been like a, like Easter egg for fans of the show. She hasn't had like her own run or anything in the comic. She does like astral projection and, and telepathy and like any, if, if you can associate a power with, with dreaming, she does it in some capacity in the show. Um, this is a rare exa- uh, example in the big two of a trans character that is not a side character. Um, she is a major player in Supergirl once she comes onto the scene um, and has an origin story that is incredibly trans affirming. Um, her powers are hereditary through the women in her family. So it's like one of those like your grandmother, oh, my cool. mother and her mother and her mother before all had this power there. There's always been a, oh, okay. a dreamer in the world. And huh. um, her origin story specifically involves her, like accepting her trans identity and then getting the powers of her mother um, when she does. So like, um, you know, affirming her womanhood. So it's, it's very oh, cool. Wikipedia. Cool. Wikipedia says that Nia Nal is the first transgender superhero on television. Okay. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Great. I I which like I saw that and I'm hesitant to throw around absolute terms like first, first. without re- doing more research and I didn't do more research. So well, thank you, and Tom. I what I what I do want to say is that this is perhaps the only good thing that came from Supergirl the TV show. Um, I don't I know fans of Supergirl, is that a hot the take? TV show. Is, is that it? a hot take? It might I don't, be a hot take. Okay, full full disclosure. I watched the pilot and I I could not I, run fast enough. So maybe it I know get it better. got be- I know it got better after the first season from from okay. the fan I know who is Derek Harper, my brother. Um, oh, okay. Well, I I, <laughs> yeah. I respect friend of the show Derek Harper. That's I, yeah. I retract my statement until further research is done. Um. So on the Marvel side of things, uh, Marvel has had a a slightly longer history of um non-binary verbiage in their among their characters uh shapeshifters like mystique raven darkholm and i think this is zavin from the runaways tend to make commentary zavin zavin great tend to make commentary on the fluid nature of gender as shapeshifters because they can change their sex um although in these portrayals it they they do tie gender to sex and the fluidity of gender is tied to their their specific fluidity of of sex as well um which is an out and now more outdated understanding of gender and sex but um these marvel was trying with these characters and this is again 
where where these missteps kind of happen. Um, local, Loki has also famously been portrayed as a non-binary or gender fluid character for the last 20 years or so, including an Easter egg in the Disney Plus show. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has done a better job more recently at separating their sex from their gender as than others, but again, isn't 100% perfect, again, because our understanding sure. of that is still changing. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point to make. That's something I just thought of when you said that. Like, I, Our understanding as a society has changed and changed yeah. dramatically even in the last 10 yeah. years. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't... We have language now that we didn't have again yes. post-MCU. Like when Iron Man came out, which apparently is a Nexus event uh, <laughs> of it, in of its own, we went from like, in that span of time, we went from like, do you know how I know you're gay in 40-year-old virgin to like right. having all this language and the idea of just like casually using pronouns in everyday language, mm-hmm. despite what some older coworkers might disagree with. Um, it just, I think, I think it should be stated that a lot of this stuff does come with sometimes good intentions, but sometimes maybe uh, an element of its time or maybe like, yeah, you didn't do the research. Yes. And, and there are certainly cases more recently where like element of its time isn't appropriate anymore. Like we can't say, yeah, Mm -hmm. we can't say like tying a character who's like, you know, gender is binary, non-binary because I, I can, grow and lose a penis at any moment in time like that is an outdated (laughs) mode of thought right but yeah in the 80s when when ray when mystique was saying things like that that was a new understanding at the time and like we like you said just didn't have the understanding we do now to like fully grok that um but it was an attempt and i think it should be Again, I this this cis white male thinks it should be recognized as a positive push forward from the time. Um, yeah. I don't have specific names for this section, but I remember when I was reading New X-Men, uh, Morrison included non-binary classmates in Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters and included the, under, included the movement past the gender binary as one of the ultimate goals of... Um, I think both the Brotherhood of Mutants and Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, like because Magneto's whole thing during that era was like was more a mutant revolution, but that revolution pushed pushing people past oppressive systems, which um, they recognized the gender binary as one such. Um, and then another one that kept coming up in my research from Marvel is a in 2011 they introduced the character Hydra Queen. Currently, the leader of Hydra is a trans woman, canonically a trans woman, although it's not explicitly mm. stated in the comics. Um, it's very clearly implied um, through both the character design and like context clues they leave. Um, it seems to be one of the few villains where their trans identity is not like a part of their villainy. Be- again, because it's not like specifically called out. It's there. There's this long history of like of villains having gay affectations to clue the 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 reader or listener or viewer in on the fact that like this is a villain. Look how flamboyant they're acting. It doesn't seem the case here. Um, however, this is very contra- also controversial because in the comics, Hydra are 100% right. absolutely Nazis. 
Um, right? You yes. don't have this like separation from Nazism that you do in the yeah. MCU. Um, and Nazis didn't do good things to trans people in Nazis don't right. like trans people. You can just no. you can just say right. it that way. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, yeah. that's not a hot take. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like it it exists. It's in Marvel. It's a thing. I don't know. I don't know what to do with this because it's cause it's not it's not my <laughs> it's not my my call to make. Um, yeah. It's it's a it's a super comic book way of, of doing and things though, and and it's almost to me feels too stupid to criticize could, could you say they were so close <laughs> so close guys um yeah. yeah that's what i found um as far as this goes uh anyone got anyone got anything did this ring any bells for anyone or or just something you've like been holding on to for a while you wanted to talk about now's your yeah. chance Cool. I have I have two things. Um, thing one is you mentioned Zavin earlier from yes. the Runaways. Zavin is included in uh, the Runaways TV show and oh. is non-binary, transcends gender. Zavin is an alien that can change how they look. So yeah. you know, take that for what it's worth. But hmm. um, in the show, and I'm not super familiar with the run of the book that Zavin is introduced in but in the show for Runaways Zavin is betrothed to another character that character's name is Carolina when we meet Zavin in the show Zavin is presenting as traditionally male but Carolina is in a, a sapphic relationship with another woman on the team and so Zavin does a, is this form not pleasing to you? And, oh. you know, <laughs> does a shapeshift. Um, so again, you know, it's like, it's close. Um, but the other cool thing that I really wanted to talk about way back when you were talking about the golden age of comics and you were talking about like Millie the model and uh, your your early era romance novels. Tina the typist. Yeah, yeah whatever other... The Thrilling <laughs> Adventures of Tina the Typist. <laughs> Name and job, the movie. Um, yeah. So one of the characters from that era is Patsy Walker, um, famously of Miss America Teen Comics um, from the 40s, and then uh, Patsy and her pals and Patsy and Hetty, which were the two spinoff comics. So Miss America Teen Comics was published by Timely Comics, which then became Atlas Comics, which then became Marvel Comics. And Patsy Walker's series were run continuously through 1967. And why that's cool is because after 1967, Marvel took the same character, Patsy Walker, and transformed her into Hellcat and made her a superhero that they continued to use through the Defenders mm. and oh. wrote it as um, her character, the storybooks like the Patsy and Hetty and Patsy and her pals and the early books were canonized as comic books written by Patsy's mother, Dorothy, to sell the story of her daughter's American life. 
oh cool if this sounds really familiar to you patsy walker uh is known a little bit better as trish walker from the jessica jones Uh, netflix show uh, portrayed by rachel taylor and that's the same character it's an incredibly similar story the way that she's Hmm. used is, is very similar but hellcat's a really cool character um she gets kind of shafted in season three of Jessica Jones and uh, Netflix, but Hellcat (laughs) as a character is really cool and is, I believe, if I remember correctly, the only character from the golden age of comics that Marvel has printed continuously as the same character. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. That's really neat. That is very neat. Um, I made a joke at the beginning of this that nobody reads anymore, and one of the <laughs> things that I've been trying to do this year to improve myself is to read. Um, and I actually have a book recommendation, which is a, it's not a comic book, it's just a book-ass book, but uh, listeners out there, if you are interested in the idea of women just not being represented in, in, in life, <laughs> in, in anything... Uh, a really good book is it's called Invisible Women. Um, the full title is Invisible Women Exposing Data. God damn it. Invisible Women Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Um, it's a really good book. Uh, it, t- it talks a lot about how our society operates to the disadvantage of women. And that is, and I think that the tight 30 on that is there is men are not intentionally trying to disadvantage women and, and in people of color. It's that white, white men are predisposed to dis, to advantage, to give advantage advantage to themselves and disadvantage to other people because they do not. Cause we have dumb, bu- we have dumb we don't monkey consider. brains. Yeah. We've done yeah. monkey brains, but it, it's, it's the fact of, it's the fact of negligence, right? Yeah. You know, we as good intention. And I say that because, at the end of the day, as good as those intentions might be, we still will fall flat when we are trying to write perspectives that are not our own. Yes. And I say that because I want to I want to then dovetail this into talk about Miss Marvel, which is a very relevant thing that's happening right now. Quite literally, as of this recording, we are about to see episode two of the show. And Miss Marvel is an example of a a Pakistani American superhero written by a female Pakistani American writer created by. Oh. And I think, yeah. And I think there is a distinct difference, a type, a coat of polish, if you will, when that kind of writer, somebody who has actually had those experiences is able to create and write freely that character and use that voice there's a reason why the Moon Knight show whipped so hard and, and was yeah. such a good representation of Egyptian culture for the same reason. And, and why the, why the Miss Marvel show, again, we've only seen one episode to this at the point of this recording, but like why that feels so representative without Miss Marvel's powers being, I don't know, the power of, of, Pakistan Whatever. careful yeah careful. The re- I don't I don't want to say any I don't want to even say anything as a joke you know yeah yeah like kind of like you I mean like I mean I'm sorry but like Black Panther right like yeah Black Panther has the power of Africa 
you know? <laughs> yeah. And like it was, and he was written that way. Yeah. That movie was a really good adaptation and changed that a little bit, but like black Panther's superpower is Africa. So yeah. how do you, how do you take a character and while, and, and represent her, how, represent her diversity without making it a thing, like without mm-hmm. making yes. her identity that, well, you do so because you can, you have somebody who has had those experiences and can write a, for, I can naturally retell that story and have her powers be super stretchy arms and it's fine. Yeah. 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 That's right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think all of these moments that we talked about that we were like, ah, oh, they were so close. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, I am certainly not the first person to say this and I don't want to come off as such, but all of those things could have been fixed by having someone in the room, you know? Right. Mm-hmm, like, if right. this isn't a room of cishet white dudes, maybe some of these problems start yeah. to get better. And and at the end of the day, I think the real message there is just how important representation is, not only in the media that you create, but in the people who you let create that media. Because right. as much as I consider myself to be an ally, like... I'm not going to sit down and write a a queer black trans person story in a way that is going to be in any way sincere or, you know, even necessarily relatable because yeah. that's not the life experience that I've had. Right. Yeah. And you, you'll try. I mean, you'll try. You'll do the research. You'll, you know, you'll put in all the effort. But at the end of the day, it's still going to fall flat because you did not have that experience. I think I think that we can, like, tie this all back to to the origin of comics like the you have like things like the x-men work well as a tale of prejudice because Mm -hmm. uh stan lee a jewish man wrote his experiences with that into the x-men now they aren't the Mm -hmm. the x-men aren't jewish or the ones that are it's not Right. Central Nor did Stanley grow up fighting giant robots. But right. Correct. Yeah. We get but, the point. Yeah. But the the interactions, the the pre, the mutant characters who society looks down upon, um, reflect his experiences as a Jewish man. Like it's it 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 is better when people are able to write about their experiences and not try and write about experiences they yeah. think they can. Yes. Yep. Um, with, with that, I want to close us out on, on, um, I hope something fun. I hope people are able to laugh with, uh, (laughs) recognize we are laughing with, with you at these times. The cap, the capitalist machine, the capitalist machine tried to, to be inclusive and in, in, did in fact just whiff so hard all we can do is laugh at it because otherwise we would we would be sad all the time. Um, and two, I have two examples of this. If you guys, um, if any come to mind, please please feel free to share them afterwards. Um, and my first one is actually also Miss Mar- a Miss Marvel uh, point, but it's the first Miss Marvel who was white and blonde and and it, written in the seventies. Miss um, Marvel was a was a early character in the bronze in the Silver Age. Um, adopted by feminists at the time. She was Miss Marvel. She wasn't Supergirl. She was a woman on her own fighting crime. 
And Marvel, in an attempt to add what they thought would be a woman-specific story, had an arc where Miss Marvel was raped, accosted for wanting to abort the pregnancy that resulted of that, fell in love with her rapist, and moved in and raised the baby with her rapist. And this was all in an attempt to write a realistic um, women woman specific story and judging by the looks on all of your faces I see you all understand how poorly they did in realizing that yeah that was Yikes. they missed all of the marks we, yeah, yeah. Close. I'm pretty sure we talked about that one when we last yeah, bridged this topic so, of just yeah. like how how terrible and like Years later, they they revisited the topic and like, you know, Ms. Marvel like got to like they they did a little better everyone. Yeah. But like, yeah. But who that's saying it was was rough. Um, Yeah, it's mm -hmm. a big heck and yikes. It's 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 real bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And that it is emblematic of like the the fridging example. It's the one of the earlier cases of just like here's a woman character we're gonna put her through some trauma and and have some self-actualization come out on the other side that's the plot um it's just one of the more one of the most egregious examples of that um easily easily the other one i have is um and i have a an image of it here in our notes in 2007 Sideshow Collectibles released a 14-inch statuette of Mary Jane hand-washing Peter Parker's Spider-Man costume. Um, again, Which is, mind you, let's let's stop there. That, that description is, alone is yeah, already bad. like pretty, that's all you need. Pretty yes. not great, but then it gets worse. This mm-hmm. was all in a in an attempt to create more female collectibles. Um, mm-hmm. Has Mary Jane like? bent over at the waist, thong straps like popping out of her low-rise jeans, boobs hanging out of her shirt. like Big Rob Liefeld energy. No, you know what this is? It's the Megan Fox in Transformers pose. It's the Megan it is Fox, the Megan and Fox and in Transformers, Transformers pose. pose. Yeah. Same was year. that the same? It's oh, same year. Say, it's exactly, it's verbatim that pose. Yeah. Um, happily like scrubbing Spider-Man's uniform in a, in a, bucket of suds like it's it's again as bad as it sounds there's zero redeeming qualities about this statue um and it was sold and pushed in 2007 once again so i looked once i saw that you put this in here so it was a limited run and there were only so many of these collectibles made and you can currently bid for it on ebay for anywhere between 700 to 1200 dollars Hell yeah. If you really got to have have this. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things Yay, that like looking at it in 2000. Geez. Yeah. Wow. It's <laughs> it's identical. It is the, the Megan they just Fox. put That's the uh, Megan Fox pose yeah. in our uh-huh. show notes. And yeah, I mean, it is like graphically the same copy paste. But I just who did they make this for? Like who? <laughs> who did nerds, Matt? Like yeah, yeah I mean, but who did Toy Designer LLC wake up and like who at that company was like, 
I know what the kids want. Well, they well, want a laundry what, action what figure. They, what they did, Matt, is they had the dry erase board and it said kids with a bunch of circles around it and then horny with yep. a bunch of circles around it. Yeah. And they step back and they go, hmm. They drew a line between those two and someone was like, that line is shaped like Megan Fox. What if we did that? I mean, yeah. and I, I don't, I don't, I don't think the collectibles, the the statuette collectibles market is aimed at kids either, because these things no, at launch fair. are two hundred, two three hundred bucks a lot of times. Yeah, too. fair. These are these are aimed at the whales, which are weird horny nerds. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. So I've got one to add that's that's lighter. Um, so if you are, if it's you not. Are, it's just different. It's different. Well, yeah. so the way that I found out about it is if you consume. Uh, dropout media, uh, college humors, you know, transformation. There's a show called Um Actually, and Um Actually introduced the they they did a whole because what they do is they like present a situation and you have to like pick out what's wrong about it. And uh, they discussed pink kryptonite. So there is a run of a I think it was a Supergirl comic where Superman is exposed to pink kryptonite. Which pink kryptonite turns people gay? <laughs> turns that is Kryptonians gay. Kryptonians gay. Oh specifically. God! That, that sucks is, so bad. It sucks so bad, and it sucks worse because reasons that are forthcoming. So when when Superman is exposed to it, he becomes gay, and <laughs> he it is telegraphed <laughs> that he is gay because he is attracted to Jimmy Olsen, um, which is like not an adult uh yeah. and mm-hmm. and he makes he makes commentary on window treatments which is a bad stereotype now here's the kicker everyone listening at home you get to play along as well what year do you think this comic came out that's what i was oh. looking up i know it's don't not... if you look it up don't say it i know it's, i don't want to know and i know it's more recent than we all want it to it's, be it's a number that's higher than i want it to be yeah. uh-huh. okay so it was 2012 that they legalized gay marriage, right? Uh huh. I say it was, it was before then. Oh, okay. It was before. Yeah. I was gonna say that this was in response to no, to no, try no, and capture no. the gay audience. Um, I'll say I'll say 2010. Uh, it was 2003, which is still okay. too too recent. Way too um, recent. Way yeah. too recent. Yeah. Uh. So pink kryptonite. I don't know who thought that that would just be a thing but it is again that's right in that that's right in that era of like of like look we we acknowledged gay people are real that's progressive right like yeah 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 and we did it the way (laughs) so i'm pretty sure the rest of the world has recently found out about this due to that show i'm actually and the way it works is they'll read a statement and they have to buzz in and say, um, actually, and then they correct them. And what's funny is they read this out and he's like, no, like pink kryptonite's not the thing that's wrong about that <laughs> statement. And Brennan Lee Mulligan buzzes in and goes, um, actually, that's offensive. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then he tells them the rest of the story and they're like, um, actually, that's incredibly offensive. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, well, Matt, Matt <laughs> Andrew. Any uh, any good good missteps? Any any fun goofs? There's, there are there are no good yeah. missteps. They're all yeah. 
This they're is all, all bad. bad, and it's it's yeah. it's the only good is that I think they're becoming less frequent in major stories as they become more responsible yeah. and more in- yeah. as we've said as they I become more inclusive in their writers and mm-hmm. their their designers and yeah. ideally the people making the decisions yes andrew yeah <laughs> thank you uh i i would like to do a tight 30 on she-hulk and and i'm no, going to pose yeah. a question because i don't know a lot about she-hulk but what i do know is that she-hulk's pitch is hulk but lady yep but two, She-Hulk has always been like just green lady and not just like green, strong, but green lady. Just green, strong lady, not like yeah. ravaging idiot I mean, like the Hulk. Is. Right. She's, yeah. she's been she's been bigger and smaller, but she's woman, always like smart. Lady. Woman, woman must be woman. Now, I, I know I know that the character like she's a lawyer and it's like kind of this like funny thing and like that's fine. But, um, you know, we haven't seen as again as this recording we haven't really seen a lot out of She-Hulk's side of short of like one one minute teaser trailer, which that show is coming later this year. But, you know, there was a lot of news reports surfacing that when they original originally did the SFX for um the uh the She-Hulk the general show. like yeah. yeah, the the greening her out, right? Mm-hmm. Um they were told by Disney to tone down the the physicality. Mm-hmm. Which like really bums me out. Super bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Big bummer. Yeah. Especially because like I feel like their last couple shows have been really inclusive mm-hmm. and progressive and trying to push this forward. And I don't know, that that just really like really bummed me out. Um I I don't I don't have a lot of expectations going in that show. So we'll mm-hmm. all, I mean we'll see what that ultimately becomes. But I'm curious, I mean, do we any of y'all have a lot of history with She-Hulk? I know that so she she has had varying levels of power as well. Um, I don't I'm sure there's probably a storyline where she's been giant punching Hulk like design. But I know that she has gone through like any hero like power ups, power downs. And so I don't know. I I'm also very bummed if there's any truth to like they tone down the muscle on the punching green lawyer. And I I'm hopeful that they would ease out of that i mean it's not like they can't fix that in some way shape or form but i don't give me slightly larger woman yeah lawyer who's green like give me if 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 she's got hulk blood like just do it like your luisa i mean disney's already learned the lesson from Encanto. right luisa luisa was an incredibly popular character Mm -hmm. like we have the receipts now yeah yeah. I'm hoping it's Disney yeah. has the receipts now. I'm hoping it something similar to the Sonic movie happens where the fans bully <laughs> Disney yeah. bully them into yeah. into giving Jessica Walker yeah. um let's get let's some, get the vascular cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I okay, so I don't want to d- defend Disney. That's not what I'm here for. Um so I don't know, <laughs> call it hopium, I guess, but um, my understanding of She-Hulk, which again, like I don't have a ton of background on, is that She-Hulk as a character, at least in her more modern stories, and again, I have not done the research to back this shit up, so feel free to tell me that I'm wrong, but my right. understanding is that She-Hulk as a character in her more modern books acts as kind of a satire to this 
like idea of a female superhero because my understanding is that She-Hulk fucks that like She-Hulk <laughs> is over-sexualized as a commentary and then she uses like she embraces that sexuality. I am not researched enough to like talk about it eloquently, sure. so I'm not going to try. But I get what you're trying is... to convey. Like, because there was a period of time where She Hulk was like, they, she was a superhero, and then her day job was like she did the Ally McBeal thing of like a woman wanting to, right, wanting wanting mm-hmm. it all kind of thing. And I can yeah. easily see now how here in 2022 current She-Hulk is written as as a spin on that where like she she is getting it all like it's not a struggle she's just crushing it because she's she yeah so hmm. I could see and that so like but I don't know how I don't I again don't haven't done the research so right yeah so I I don't want to like you know hop up on a high horse and tell you that like it's all okay because that but I do think <laughs> that there's there's some background there the other thing I will say that I've kind of, again, I just, I'll call it hopium. Um, the hopium yeah. that I'm huffing is that the VFX changes to She-Hulk were to avoid the uncanny valley because okay. I think that She-Hulk is the character so far in the MCU that is the closest to the uncanny valley Unless hmm. somebody else has another example, because maybe Hulk she is, Ruffalo, but like maybe little... Smart Hulk, but yeah. he's so blown out in proportion, and She Hulk in most mm. of her comic books is not yeah. super massive, and so yeah. like I'm afraid. But then do the Gandalf camera trick, right? Like do yeah. I mean we have there is a playbook for that. Like that's that exists. I don't know. I mm-hmm. right. We and don't again, need like, to make I, a big deal about it. We haven't seen the show yet. So. Yeah, I'm not. I am not not trying to be an apologist for Disney, and I refuse yeah. to be labeled as such. But like, I think that early sh- early TV previews on shows with monster VFX budgets do yeah. not the final product show, and I'm withholding my judgment. Until totally fair. August, mm-hmm. I think, is when that comes out. Yeah, we will see then. All right. Matt, did you want to talk about Black Widow's feet? Yeah. No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you really? You uh, baited me into agreeing with to you, get, Kyle? We made it to um, the ending just to get the opener. Hell yeah. <laughs> God damn it. Um, yeah, the other thing that I, I did bring up that I wanted to talk about off the air uh, was Scarlett Johansson's inclusion into the MCU and the way that Natasha Romanoff as a character was treated by Joss Whedon and also John Favreau, <laughs> but like lesser so John Favreau, mm-hmm. mostly Joss Whedon. Um, starting with her introduction in Iron Man 2, which I think is a MCU movie that not a lot of people have rewatched recently. I think it's not the worst MCU movie, but I, I will say take the time to go back and watch the introduction of Scarlett Johansson as Tony's new assistant. And it's I mean, it's like it's like they signed Scarlett Johansson up as a supermodel and we're like, I mm-hmm. guess we'll make you a superhero you, eventually. Iron Man 2 is the the one 
I see the starkest difference between the transition from Paramount to Disney. Um, for yeah. for a lot yes. of the reasons you're saying and some others, mm-hmm. but like that is the one that feels most like a Paramount movie and not a Disney movie of the the early yeah. MCU canon. For sure, I, yeah. I think that one and Incredible Hulk are the two that are like Ugh. this is pre Disney for sure. But she was just a sex toy. I mean, that was like mm-hmm. the and that's yeah. I think probably why Scarlett Johansson was such a big cast at the time because that was before Scarlett Johansson was the highest paid woman in Hollywood and was the newer hot thing on the block being that that was 2009 2010 uh, I think Iron Man 2 was 9 okay cuz um, cuz one was 2008 yes yeah so that was like pretty rough and then Age of Ultron happened. <laughs> we, but even we the, know this story. Yeah, even the first Avengers was very like, and she's also here. You know, yeah. like her inclusion, I think, really reeks of that Joss Whedonism that we already talked about earlier, which is like, yeah, I can kick ass, but I'm gonna be sexy while I do it. Um, I think that early black widow had a lot in common with uh pamela anderson movie barbara wire um barb wire it's a bad movie <laughs> uh, but, uh i was yeah it was that same like you know sexy leather flips and i'm i'm glad that we got to see scarlett johansson and natasha romanoff uh evolve throughout the mcu but i don't think that like you can point to anything pre end game and say that her portray not Scarlett Johansson uh, Infinity pre, War pre um well I'd Civil say War pre Civil War she's okay in, yeah. okay um, yeah I, I would take that no Winter Winter Soldier I would yeah, say yeah Winter Soldier is mm-hmm. it she's she is a prominent she is the mm-hmm. she is the second lead in Civil in Winter Soldier I was cutting mm-hmm. out Winter Soldier because there's still a a non zero amount of like. Let me make out with you so that we can avoid this security guard. Um, they, yeah. they were definitely but, trying to find their feet on like giving her that like femme fatale. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, they were trying yeah. to do cool born identity woman. Yeah. So like again, it, it got better, but yeah. I I think that I am definitely guilty of this, and I think a lot of people are too, of saying that like, sure, Marvel's done some bad things, but look how good the MCU is. Well, um, right. and yeah, and and there are examples even in the modern day MCU that are less than stellar. There's there's some additional. I mean, this is just a fun like bit. I know that I I will not apologize for what they did to Scarlett Johansson in Age of Ultron, but I also know that they were creative with some of her scenes because she was like multiple months pregnant during the filming of that movie. Yeah. So there's which like, one? Uh, Age of Ultron. Ah. And so, like, there. That's why, like, the the bar scene. Like, you only see her from like, like, yeah. the, the chest up. Yeah, Th- there's okay. there's multiple times that like her scenes are trimmed strange, or she's at a certain perspective because like she was like six months pregnant. Hmm. Huh. That does not excuse the damage done there. Just no, no, no. If there's one thing on debate this that we do not do is apologize for Age of Ultron. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, 
Um, all right. Well, that is going to do it for our um, gender in comics flavor text. Thank you again, Sharkbait, for commissioning that. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Debate This. You can follow along with the arguments on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at DebateThisCast or on our website at DebateThisCast.com. And once more, if you want to commission your own flavor text, like what Sharkbait did here today, um, check out our Patreon at Patreon.com slash DebateThisCast. Joining up at the $25 Master Debater level, you will have access to the post-show, the Google Docs, our monthly movie nights, and then after three months, you get to unlock your first Flavor Text episode. You also get to join our Discord and chat with us online. Um, it's got a lot of perks, and we like money. Please p- subscribe to our Patreon. Um, well, we don't like money. We like eating. We let's like, be honest. Like, <laughs> we like yeah, eating yeah, yeah. and, we and like having our rent taken shelter. care of. Well, I think, yeah. I think what Kyle's really missing is if you subscribe and you're, or if you, you join our Patreon and you join the Discord, you get to see beefy pictures of chris evans as the souped up captain america who's <laughs> you all you get to see yeah kyle really buried above. the lead you're right yeah. Todd. <laughs> yep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so that's gonna do it until next time i'm kyle harper i'm todd if you thought pink kryptonite was bad in 2003 wait till they bring it back in 2017 thomas i'm matt disinterested in talking about scarlett johansson's feet cole and I'm Andrew, unleash the swole cut, Henderson. And we are saying thanks for debating with us. And if you think we're wrong, you can come fight us behind the swing sets, nerds. 